1: Hi there and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, this week I'm going to be talking a little bit more about Britain in the 1970s. Um, done a little bit on Britain in the 60s previously. But the 70s for my money is much more interesting, much more fraught um, and much more uh, pertinent decade. It tells us an awful lot about um, Britain's difficulties throughout the post-war period. Um, The first four years of that decade are dominated by Edward Heath who becomes Prime Minister in 1970 uh, winning a surprise election against uh, Harold Wilson and um, being eventually borne down by the miners in 1974. Now the dominant theme throughout this period will be industrial relations. Um, In fact there are are actually two uh, key themes. That of inflation and that of union unrest. The number of strike days being lost in Britain had mounted over the 1950s and 1960s, and it was in the late 1950s you start to see kind of uh, cultural representations of this with films like I'm All Right Jack, uh, which, if you haven't seen it, is a very funny film starring Peter Sellers and Terry Thomas about a, a union shop floor um, shop steward who is so belligerent, so small-minded, and so petty that he calls the union out on strike at the drop of a hat. What was happening from the 50s and 60s onwards is that as society became more affluent and wealthy, the um, labour aristocracy, the the um, leadership of the trade unions, had become progressively more and more remote from their rank-and-file membership, living quite affluent lifestyles, and the rank-and-file membership Looked to the unpaid shop stewards, who uh, very often behaved like little Napoleons in on their own lunchtime, um, who called out wildcat strikes that were not sanctioned by the TUC, and really became the the tail wagging the dog. They had uh, eventually by the late 1970s more power than the union leadership. And it was these shop stewards who by the late 1970s had really radicalised and believed they, they were bringing about a revolution in Britain. Um, they were reading really um, from um, Trotsky uh, and that sort of thing. And they had obviously extensive uh, relationships with the, the far left in Britain at the time. But we need to go back a pace. By the late 1960s, um, Harold Wilson had realised that successive devaluations of the pound had derailed his plan to spend lots of money modernising Britain, create reforging Britain, as he said, in the, the white heat of technology. Much of that was rhetoric anyway. It was a way of distinguishing this new modern kind of Labour Party from the old, as he put it, the grouse moors and tweeds of the, the Conservatives. And by the early 1960s, uh, all things working class, from the, the Beatles through to the uh, kitchen sink dramas of people like Alan Silito, were hugely popular. And um, people like um, Alec Douglas Hume, the Prime Minister whom um, Wilson beat, and Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister before him, had seemed hopelessly anachronistic, and the um, old school tie of the uh, Etonians and harrovians that dominated the Conservative Party, was seen as very much a thing of the past. Wilson um, claimed to really be looking to, to sweep all this away. How much sweeping he did is, uh, is questionable. But ultimately, um, the technological future he planned for Britain was a l- largely a rhetorical one. Um, and the, uh, by the late 1960s, this is not happening. Um, Britain is no um, more an industrial powerhouse uh, or a a high-tech economy than it was in 1964 when Wilson came to power. In fact, countries like West Germany and Japan are streaking ahead. So, instead, Wilson looks to the big, what he sees as the, the big industrial problem of the time, the growing number of strikes. Now, if you actually look comparatively at um germany at america at japan britain is far down the list of strike days lost and the impact of strike days was more political and cultural than it was economic there was less damage in the 1960s to the british economy through strike days uh, than one might think i think we lost 0.5 of a percent of all working of working days in britain due to strikes um, in 66 to 68 Um however newspapers like the times particularly and uh, much of the media and much of the general public indeed saw the unions in a progressively less and less sympathetic light um, in the thirties and forties there had been substantially more support and more sympathy for the unions but in, a te- in an age of far greater um, affluence and an age of far greater prosperity the uh, behaviour of the unions was becoming less and less palatable and more and more disruptive. So by the late 1960s, Wilson believed that it was time to take the unions on, and so he did the brave thing and handed the job to Barbara Castle. Um, Wilson didn't want to be seen to be doing this himself. He was very much testing the waters to see if this would uh, be something he could get away with. By the ni- late 1960s, of course, Wilson's very suspicious of people like James Callahan in his cabinet suspecting that there might be a coup to overthrow him and James Callaghan's behavior didn't kind of do anything to allay these fears the uh job that um Barbara Castle who is the um secretary of Chief, I believe at the time it was trade and employment um was given was to uh come up with a solution to the, the union problem so she took kind of her senior civil service team off to the um, civil service college at sunningdale and uh, in late 1968 and in January uh, 69 presented Wilson with a uh, report which came to be known as the in place of strife report and it recommended um, a cooling off period for the unions uh, if there had been a wildcat strike so 28 days where people had to go back to work legally and uh, at risk of perhaps losing their jobs and had to um, calm down in essence and to uh, allow the uh, fiery rhetoric of the uh, shop stewards maybe just to wear off a little bit before seriously taking industrial action and all of the industrial action had to be balloted Um this meant that there would be some curb on union power but not an excessive amount the unions rejected it out of hand Wilson uh, panicked, distanced himself from the report And Callaghan, speaking up for the unions, which, as we shall see when we look at The Winter of Discontent, is an extremely ironic turn of fate. Callaghan, speaking up for the unions, decided that he was going to uh, sabotage Castle's efforts. And as a result, the one chance to um, before the 1970s to uh, rein in union power um, is missed. So Edward Heath... Inherits the um, the problem. Edward Heath uh, was a man who was um, a good administrator. He was a good organizer, but p- perhaps the most unsuccessful and uncharismatic British Prime Minister, with maybe the exception of Gordon Brown. Um, the problem that Edward Heath had is that he really was not good at dealing with people, which, as you can imagine. Uh, Prime Ministership of Great Britain is uh, that skill is something of a prerequisite. Edward Heath um, was short, um, abrupt, um, famously bad-tempered, and really uh, an appalling communicator. However, um, he had a vision for Britain, um, one that he kind of was articulated la- later uh, at the Selsden Park Conference. In January 1970, before the election, Heath got together his shadow cabinet and uh, political advisers at the Salisdon Park Hotel and planned out a manifesto for Britain. And it was really a a kind of proto-Thatcherism. It was about reducing the role of the state, introducing the free market, trade union reform and most of the things that you can see emerging from 1979 onwards under Margaret Thatcher. The problem with the Selsden Park uh, Conference was that when it eventually came to enacting the manifesto, by 1972 almost every major strand of it had not just fallen apart but had gone into reverse. Edward Heath actually expanded the size of the state. He uh, was seemingly incapable of uh, expanding the role of the free market in Britain And certainly by 1974, he completely failed at trade union reform. So how had this happened? Well, I think the answer is this, is that Heath was this curious mixture of the old One Nation Tory, the um, Harold Macmillan kind of conservative who had existed throughout the post-war era, who believed in a kind of a consensus of... um, A mixed economy, a degree of nationalisation, a commitment to full employment and a reasonable working relationship with the trade unions. These were the the pillars of the consensus between the Conservative and Labour parties throughout that period. So there's that element to him, but also there is this rather functionalist, technocratic um, and um, driven sort of individual who is convinced by free market and right-wing radicals within the party who'd existed really since the late 1950s, um, most notoriously in in the guise of people like Enoch Powell, who um, really pressured for kind of uh, right-wing free market reforms.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact
2: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: And the introduction of monetarism, the contraction of the money supply the limitation of state spending and um, the uh, idea that this was the only medicine really to cure the fundamental problem of inflation. Now, I've mentioned inflation at the start of the podcast. Inflation was something that um, both parties had agreed uh, in the 40s, 50s and 60s was a necessary evil. Uh, The uh, inflation was the price worth paying for full employment. The uh, two parties had long and bitter memories of the 1930s and unemployment then and they had no wish to repeat that and the uh, kind of post-war social contract really relied on um, easy accessibility to work for most of the population. Now the problem that happens in the 1970s is not only does an, an, um, unemployment go up, but inflation does too. And this seemed to baffle econo- um, uh, economic thinkers. The idea Uh, had been in classical economics, that there was a trade-off that once unemployment went down, the economy would heat up because more people are in jobs, more people are spending, more people are making things, goods and services, and money is whizzing around. Um, This leads to a degree of inflation. And the uh, opposite scenario is lots of people are out of jobs, unemployment goes up, but inflation comes down because money isn't going around as fast, and um, in an economy with a fixed money supply, when the money supply uh, when the amount of um, money in circulation stops circulating at a certain speed, it'll tend to prices will tend to come down. So the original answer to the kind of economic dilemma had been to try to walk a kind of a delicate tightrope between a degree of inflation and a, a low degree of unemployment. This consensus seems to fall apart in the 1970s, and monetarist economists point to inflation and say, that's your problem. Inflation going up. Um, kind of erodes like a cancer, the heart of British industry. It makes it less competitive over time. So over time, gradually, unemployment will go up as well. As inflation started to tick up, um, the British miners, represented by the National Union of Mine Workers, uh, began to feel really that they had been ignored by the successes of the 1960s. By 1970, there had been uh, several decades of consumer expansion there had been since really the early 1950s a consumer boom and also a a boom in home ownership the uh, swinging 60s hadn't been swinging for most people you know most people had not seen the sex drugs and rock and roll but they had seen affluence but the miners particularly felt left out of this it was still one of britain's biggest industrial groups and one of the most unionized of all professions and hadn't had a pay rise since the early 1960s. They uh, were ready to go on strike in the early 70s, and they certainly did with um, the first national miners' strike in 50 years in 1972, which threatened to bring the country to a standstill. Now, they managed to uh, have such a devastating effect on the country for a number of reasons. The first was their leadership um, had shifted to the left to the uh, more radical and confrontational figure of Arthur Scargill, who was demanding a nearly 50% pay rise for the miners. His tactic of using flying pickets uh, meant that he coordinated groups of miners in the Midlands, in Yorkshire and in Wales to um, picket collieries, coking stations, power stations and power plants uh, up and down the country and ensure that they stay shut. Uh, In doing this, so in a coordinated manner, they caused a major threat to the uh, national power production, uh, the production of electricity across the whole of the United Kingdom. And the showdown came at the Saltley Coking plant in Birmingham. 2,000 miners picketed the plant, and the police just about managed to hold them back. Scargill then turned to the radical shop stewards in Birmingham at the various engineering works and workshops across the city and uh, arranged for them to call out their workers as well, um, thus uh, putting the fear into Edward Heath's mind that there there may well be a general strike in the offing. When the police decided they couldn't hold the miners back any longer, um, the coking plant had to be shut, and this really signified victory in seventy two for the miners um, now it's easy to look at the miners and blame them wholeheartedly, but there's another factor in all of this that needs to be taken into consideration. Edward Heath and his chancellor Anthony Barber had concocted the most incredible boom. Uh, in 1972 and the 1972 budget which led to an explosion of inflation uh, at a time when really inflation was ticking up anyway the uh, furious increase in public spending and the generous entitlements handed out uh, led to uh, a surge in prices which at a time when the miners were striking for pay that they should have been uh, paid a long long time ago really Helps us to understand their militancy. Um, Ted Heath at the time was um, happy to blame the union militancy uh, for the slowdown in the British economy and thus the inflation problem. But really, um, the problem lies a lot closer to home. The miners were reacting in, you know, a, a militant but rather predictable manner. Unfortunately, once the uh, strike was successful. Uh, Heath came to the negotiating table and agreed to the miners' demands, offering them a 27% pay rise. And the um, damage done to Heath's prestige was uh, considerable. The next attempt to deal with inflation came a year later, in 1973, when public sector pay cuts were instituted and there were caps on the amount of pay, the level of pay awards that could be given out all miners were public employees, for um, give it, bar a tiny, tiny few. Um, all miners worked, for the most part, for the National Coal Board since the nationalisation of coal. So they were subject to these pay caps. And the miners decided that, once again, they would go uh, on strike in order to protect the gains they had made in 1972. The result was that by uh, December of 1973, coal stocks had dwindled and there was not enough coal to power the power stations to keep the lights on so uh, in december 1973 heath addressed the nation and told them that there would be in essence a three day working week and that um, there would be uh, it would be a, a more difficult christmas than many had experienced since the war the um, net effect of all of this was that um, the, in the short term, Heath's popularity, uh, which was never great, uh, plummeted. By the time of the election in 1974, he uh, att- attempted a uh, rather risky act of brinkmanship and demanded to know who, who governs Britain. And the answer from the tabloids, of course, was not you, mate. And he also took the rash decision of calling a February general election when the three-day week was still in uh, in operation, um, which was probably something that no other British Prime Minister would have considered doing. The result was a hung parliament, and he couldn't rely on the support of Ulster Unionists and Liberals in order to keep the Conservative majority And so it ushered back into power Harold Wilson. But the Harold Wilson who came back into power wasn't the cocky and ebullient Yorkshireman who had swanned into 10 Downing Street a decade earlier. He was a much older, tireder, greyer and uh, less enthusiastic Prime Minister, a man who was um, fearful almost of what the next few years would hold, and rightly so. Now, there are issues, uh, for the sake of brevity in this podcast, that um, I'm not going to cover right now, um, but there are fundamental ones as well. Um, The great achievement of the Heath years, the one that um, we are uh, fools to neglect, was that Heath took um, Britain into the European Economic Community. And um, the other great catastrophe of the Heath years is obviously the escalation of violence of um, the IRA and the UVF and uh, other parties in Northern Ireland. And the situation in Northern Ireland was exacerbated really by a lot of careless neglect by the British government and a, uh, an inability really to properly engage with it. And the, the Wilson and Heath governments are both equally to blame for this. But this is a, a, a subject for another time. Um, Heath never again um, reta- returned to Ten Downing Street, and his um, kind of famous blood feud with Harold Wilson uh, is one of the kind of the defining features of um, of the period. Uh, he looked upon Wilson as a kind of a, a crook and a fraud, whereas um, Wilson looked upon Heath really as this kind of rather rather doctrinaire, rather pompous character. I always think there are some very interesting parallels between Gladstone and Disraeli on this one but again that's a story for another time anyway I hope that's been useful um, if you want a really good authoritative history of the, um, the Heath years get Dominic Sandbrook's State of Emergency, it's a brilliant brilliant book uh, written with his characteristic verb, wit and insight I uh, can't re- recommend it highly enough Anyway, I hope this has been useful to you, and uh, I'll catch you on the next podcast. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.